Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Row, row, row your boat, often up the stream. He wrote down a story that offered them glory, because life is but a dream. The end. Let's talk about Alice in Wonderland. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1862, in the United States, the Civil War was one year in, and three more bloody years were to go. It was the year of the Battle of Antietam and the Battle of New Orleans. A New York to San Francisco telegraph link was formed. Queen Victoria was on the throne in England, and one year into her mourning of Prince Albert. Great Britain and France recognized the independence of Zanzibar. <laughs> Edith Wharton, Ida Bell Wells Barnett were both born. And on July 4th, 1862, a 30 year old Charles Dodgson, a friend, and three young sisters took a rowing expedition, and the life of Alice in Wonderland began. Hello, welcome to the show. Once a season, we take some time from our historical women to talk about a fictitious character. This is that episode. Today, we are going to talk about Alice in Wonderland, the heroine of two books written 150 years ago. If you can believe that. I know. These books have proven so popular that since their first printing in 1865, they have never gone out of print. That is amazing. Alice has inspired so many adaptations. There's parodies, there's fanfic, artifacts, design, fashion, music, ballet, art. Opera. Yeah, she's in her culture so deep. Mm -hmm. I mean, almost deeper, ooh, dare I say it, almost deeper than Shakespeare, at least as popular culture. Comes. I would think so, because a lot of people can't get through Shakespeare that can get through several adaptations of Alice. So we were trying to figure out what it was about these books exactly, because I do find it strange that such a grown-up and often kind of bewildering and harsh Storybook has captured the hearts and minds of generations of children. She's seven, or seven and a half, depending mm -hmm. on which book you're reading. She's right. all alone. Everyone yells at her. <laughs> Everyone but one person is kind of mean to her. And nothing is happening the way it would happen in real life. So there you go. Yeah. Um, now, if you've come to this story from the movie adaptations, these two books have been mixed together so thoroughly in pretty much every movie you've ever seen that they're hard to separate. But we're going to. We are. Right now. We do have another episode that we've posted with this one, which goes chapter by chapter through both of the stories. We discuss the basic elements of the chapter and have a little chat about... Different quotes in each chapter. Right, and elements that appear. So go listen to that if you would like a longer version. But this is our shortened, extremely abridged version. Yes. Uh, the first book was Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, which is actually the full title. It's not Alice in Wonderland. It's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. It has a playing card-based theme, and it deals with sizes, different sizes, growing and shrinking. Alice actually grows or shrinks 12 times. There's several characters. These are the ones that belong with Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, the first book. There's the White Rabbit. Mad Hatter, or The Hatter. The Hatter. Which is his real name. Not Mad. No. And he is mad, but that's not his name. Right. The Cheshire Cat. The Caterpillar with the Hookah Pipe. The Queen of Hearts. And the much-forgotten Mock Turtle. There's other um, things that have worked into our just our everyday lives that come from this book. The Eat Me and the Drink Me. Off with her head. So that, for short version, is Alice in Wonderland. 
The second book, which came out several years later, is Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There, which is the full title. Usually that second part gets cut off. This book has a chess theme and a deals with time and space and as well as mirror images. Yeah, things often run backwards in Through the Looking Glass. Characters that are famous from this half of the works are the Red and White Queen, Tweedledum and Tweedledee. The Jabberwocky and Humpty Dumpty is in this one. So now when you see the adaptations where they're all thrown together, that's them pulled apart, basically. So again, if you would like to hear a chapter-by-chapter analysis conversation about both of these books, Beckett and Susan's Adventures in Wonderland and what we found there, uh, we're going to take a tiny little three, four-second music break here so that those who wish to leave and listen to that first have a marker to come back to. And we'll see you in a few minutes. Welcome back, if you've left. If you hadn't, maybe you got a cup of coffee. In three or four seconds. (laughs) So the origin story of Alice in Wonderland goes like this. Three little girls, Lorena, Alice, and Edith Little, are in a rowboat on the Isis River, the name of which I love. It is the name of the Thames through Oxford. Right, so if you ever see it written as they were on a rowboat in the Thames, that's why. It's the same piece of river. It's the same water. So, while poor Mr. Duckworth has to sit at the back and basically bear the brunt of rowing everybody, their other companion, the man that was rowing at the front, which anybody that rows knows is the lazy seat, the back (laughs) guy does all the work, Mr. Charles Dodgson spun a fantastic tale featuring the middle daughter, Alice. He put in a lot of in-jokes and absurdities. In fact, Mr. Duckworth called up when he was telling the story, is this some extempore romance of yours? And Dodgson called back over his shoulder. He told the whole story over his shoulder to the three little girls lounging in the middle. He said, I'm inventing it as I go along. He was the storytelling man, and usually you'd tell them, and they vanished like the mist. But this time, Alice, the middle daughter, was so intrigued probably because her name was in it and it was all about her, that she encouraged him to write them down. And he was intrigued by the project. It took him two years, and lots of embellishments later, he was able to present Alice Little with Alice and her adventures underground with hand-drawn illustrations. That actual copy still exists. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about this guy, Charles Dodgson, although... In the interest of not stumbling over his name, as his last name is very hard to say. Yes, especially for some more of one of us more than the other. Let's refer to him as Lewis Carroll, which was his pen name. Now, how did he get that name? He actually came up with a list of pen names and gave it to one of his editors prior to the Alice stories being published because he was... He had a little gig as a writer. One of the names on the list was he took his name, translated it into Latin, which would have been Corollus Ladophagus. Then he anglicized it and reversed the order. It was just a name that was on the list, Lewis Carroll, and that's the name his editor picked. And we thank him because Dodgson is really hard to pronounce. (laughs) There's a lot of myths and misconceptions about this guy, so let's just go through his life and just lay it out. And explain the misconceptions as we go. Yeah, just in chronological order, just like we always do with our women. Now we're going to do another rooster. I don't really think of Lewis Carroll as a rooster. I think he'd be an honorary chick. Ah, I bet he would like that. He would like that. (laughs) He would like that a lot. 
So he was born 1832 to Reverend Charles Dodgson and Francis Dodgson, who were, incidentally, first cousins. <sighs> <laughs> he was the third child of 11 children. But he was the first boy, mm-hmm. which is important. It, I mean, we've always talked about this in our primogenitor discussions. That's a big title and big honor right there. The family seemed to be very close and loving. Letters from their parents refer to the kids as treasures. And they kept notes on cute things the children said, just like now. With so many, though, I think, just with any large family, the siblings spent most of their time together. And the mother and father weren't as big of a influence on them on a day-to-day basis. Well, that's a lot of kids. There was Fanny, Elizabeth, Charles, Caroline, Mary, Skeffington, Wilfred, Louisa, Margaret, Henrietta, and Edwin. Can you imagine calling all those children to dinner? So Charles, as the oldest son, took on the responsibility of directing play as oldest children often do and he wrote puppet shows and he learned magic mm-hmm. he was big on cider hand tricks his whole life he did them yeah and he liked to teach them to little kids too see i wouldn't have given away the secret but whatever um he he edited a family newspaper if you've ever read little women mm-hmm. you know when they write the newspaper yeah, about yeah. pickwick and all that they totally did that they had several series of family newspapers he once can constructed a whole train out of boxes and discarded wheels and sticks, charged people and made a ticket system and a schedule and dragged people around in it. It was elaborate stuff. Um, I guess we probably don't need to say he was quite bright, even as a very young child. His brain was always working and always coming up with new and creative things. Although there's not a whole lot out there about his early childhood, because why would there be? I mean, they were upper middle class family, but they weren't royalty. Things weren't remembered as they are with those families or even today. So there's not a whole lot out there, but we have a little bit of an image of what he was like as a boy. He was educated at home until the age of 12 when he was sent to a pretty supportive school where he got good reports. But then at 15, he went to rugby, the famous public school, which to you and I in America means private school. Right. Confused. Uh, rugby at the time was known for abuse. I, I just have to say abuse. Yes. Shocking to you and me today. Little boys, in fact, would tremble in fear when the lights went out. And I don't even want to know. Don't even want to know too much of any of it. Now, and he had said something about it would have been nice if the things that, I'm, I'm just paraphrasing here, that except for the things that happened at night, it wouldn't have been that bad. So that just kind of leaves a little hint. This is the school of Tom Brown's School Days, the book. It doesn't paint a really pretty picture. One outcome of this is he became very good at fighting and sticking out for weaker people. He was always pictured as this sensitive artist, but you know what? He was a kind of bad Alec, shall we say. Mm-hmm. He could take care of himself. Uh, he was pretty manly for all that. His father, as he grew, began to kind of train him to be the heir, basically having responsibility for his brother's money, mm-hmm. managing his sister's financial affairs. The two careers that the men could do in this family would be to go into the clergy like dad or to go into the military. That's like your only options here. So he was being trained for the clergy end of it, probably because of his brain rather than his brawn, although he had some. He always reminds me of Gene Wilder almost. (gasps) That same kind of droopy eye, but kind of mischievous look on his face. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yes, you're right. Um, When his father died, the weight of responsibility was pretty crushing. 25 years the family's lived in this one house. Well, when father goes, the house is tied to the job. Mm -hmm. So all of his brothers and sisters are now homeless, 
and jobless, it's left to him to be the man of the house and fix that situation. So he did it because he is now responsible for everybody. He received a degree in 1857 from Oxford College, and he can now stay. He can stay there the rest of his life as a don, but you have to be celibate. It's part of the deal. Mm, it's not really part of my job. Is that part of your job? <laughs> that was not in my contract. No. Um, so he had to stay celibate, and at that time it meant you couldn't marry, really. And he had to be ordained as a minister within a four-year period. Right. So those were the two conditions there. And he's kind of on a track to do that. So he's at Oxford as a mathematics lecturer. This is job. He is obsessed with numbers and logic, uh, but is not an inspired teacher. In fact, most of his students were richer than him, his age, and it was not... I mean, university is just something you check off on your list mm. before you go take over your estates or your father gives you some money. It's like gentleman's sea land. Yeah, there wasn't much he could do. He was not a well-respected um, teacher. He did. Let me give you an example of the kind of contradictions in math that he liked. He's kind of nerdtacular in this way. <laughs> Definitely. So here's the problem. If it takes 10 men five days to build a wall 100 yards long, how long would it take 10,000 men? So, yes, you can do the mathematical answer with your formula. And then he would be like, okay, it's correct, but it's not true. Because 10,000 men, most of them wouldn't get anywhere near that wall. So how can that be true? Oh, I thought it was math. No, wait. <laughs> so his point is math has an answer, but it's not always right. Clever. And that translates if I had just known that in school, my <laughs> life would have been so different. Because I'm not, are you mathy? I could be mathy in the right mood, yes. I'm never in that mood. It's like da-da-da plus da-da-da plus da-da-da divided by da-da-da equals refrigerator. You know, that's my mind. I don't get it. <laughs> that's funny. But I would have loved to have an out. Well, he wrote textbooks and a play about Euclidean geometry. Sell me some popcorn for that. <laughs> Um, now, he did have a stammer. Now, as a lecturer, you would imagine that that would probably be a problem. As a practical joke. They used to make him read out some of the passages during church service, and they would always pick some that included the words Peter or Paul, and people would come specially. Yeah, so they could hear Paul or Peter. Dirty. So he's always portrayed now as this shy weirdo. But you know what? He had an extensive network of friends. He was very social. And he attracted ladies of all ages to him to be his friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, he did not have this monk-like, nerdy existence with pens in his pocket and his glasses with tape. I mean, he's not a no. complete social nerd. <laughs> yeah, he would have done great in modern times. Now, he never did speak on a phone or a recording device, both of which existed during parts of his life, but he did embrace the new art of photography. In fact, had he never written the Alice in Wonderland books, he might still be known because there are thousands of plates of his photography, mm -hmm. um, often very artistic and well done. And given the failure rate of photography... He must have taken tens of thousands of pictures. Oh, he was quite renowned as an amateur photographer. Yeah. And we'll, we're going to link you up, too. Absolutely. Some of his work. Now, if you know one thing about Lewis Carroll, it's the Alice in Wonderland books. If you know two things, it's probably that he seemed obsessively fond of the company of young girls. Very inappropriately so. <clears throat> yes. Goes the myth. Goes. I would thank you for adding that. There is a very large controversy that there was missing pages 
in his journals that he kept from a very young age, and people filled in the blanks. If this, then that, using, you know, Carolian logic. At the time, it was very normal for older men to have friendships with younger children. It was perceived as very innocent and childlike, and it put them in a uh, position of almost purity to have this relationship with these kids. Not sexual, just friendship. Let's just put it this way. The whole issue is very unwieldy. Among experts and lifelong researchers, they even completely disagree. So, we are going to let them go to the mattresses on this one. We're here to tell you that this part of his life is a complete baffling mystery. In this time, looking back on it. But the facts of the case were he loved to hang out with little girls in as far as we can tell a really uncle kind of way. Mm-hmm. He'd buy them dolls. He knew the guy at the Campanile so they could go up and ring the bell. He'd pay for French lessons. He'd have them to tea. He had cabinets full of all kinds of inventions. He'd tell stories and play games and also take nude photos of them. Now, at the time, <laughs> it was also a trend to take, new, just like, think of the nudie baby pictures, sweet and innocent, those little baby butts in the air, you're like, oh, it's so cute. That's how they perceived the ch- young children at that age. Oh, how cute. They, it wasn't a sexual thing. I have bathtub pics of my son from as recently as 2006. I might have a couple naked butt running away pictures just because it's so cute there's little tushies like so there uh is a very saucy one of alice little that we will post on our website but what people don't often know is there is a companion piece to that one where she's dressed as the rich girl and the saucy one is the peasant girl so it was meant to be displayed together as a work of art like the contrast thing but people focus on that one Yeah, she's wearing a dress off of her shoulder and just looking like sassy. That's a really good word for it. At the time, it was a trend to dress the children in costume. And a lot of his work, they're dressed in some type of costume. And that's the portrait. Still, somehow, some part of me thinks that he must have been a good PR guy to be thought of as so trustworthy. Most of these pictures were taken with the parents' full permission. I find it a little disturbing, though perhaps I shouldn't. There's no evidence of impropriety. None. No evidence of anyone being uncomfortable with him. I mean, most of these children remained friends with him after they grew up. Nobody thought he was creepy at all until long after he was dead. But somehow looking back with my modern eye, Mm -hmm. can you see where the experts would be, like, filling in the blank? Oh, absolutely. Sure. Totally, totally, totally can see it. Now, there's another myth that he only had girl little friends, not boy little friends. Well, Alice Little had a brother named Harry. They were actually friends first. Yeah. And interestingly enough, during this time, Susan referred to that earlier, child friends were innocent. But if an unmarried man was friends with a young lady, that was pervy, and that was off color. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas the reverse would a little bit be true today. If a man had a close friend with a little kid, that would be pervy. Mm -hmm. And if he had a 20-year-old friend, that's fine. She's over 18. Right. You know what I mean? Right, right. But whereas then it would be considered completely wrong and the other way around. So what's a guy to do? He can't get married. His contract specifies celibacy. That's true. So, he was very affectionate. Think of that family he grew up in. Eleven kids. He's used to being surrounded by children. He was denied having a family of his own. I think he would have been a smashing father. You know, I think that's a way 
all these child friends are a way to recreate maybe having a family, a large family. Well, yeah, and think about Victorian parents. They didn't even let people show up in the dining room until they were presentable. But then here's this one guy that's like, let's run around. Let's play with these toys. An adult that paid attention to them. That must have been awesome. Let's take a three-mile rowing trip up the river. And I'll tell you some stories. I know. So the the littles and he were in the same environment at Oxford. Their father was the big boss. Yes, he was the dean of Oxford. All of a sudden, though he had hung out with them for years as a family friend, suddenly he was no longer welcome. There, there's a big break in 1863. So Alice is 11. You know, this rowing trip had already happened. The book was in the works. Something went down that year. The experts are baffled. Did he propose to Alice Little, who is, in fact, 11? That seems a little early for a betrothal. Or Lorena, the older sister. Might have been her that he proposed to. She might have had a crush on him. There is another school of thought that he was this whole time having an affair with their mother, which seems far-fetched to me. But she was a beauty, I mean. It could seriously be (laughs) something as mild as the girls are getting older now, etc. It's looking a little strange. They're getting too old to hang out with you. Can you just bring it down? That seems reasonable to me. You know what else seems reasonable to me is that he disagreed with some of the policies that the the father, the dean of the school, his boss, was implementing, and that caused a rift in, in their relationship. That seems quite plausible. And so you're not going to show up and play with this horrible guy from work's children if you're going to run into him somewhere mm-hmm. at the house. You know, so right. that makes sense, too. So, again, this is unwieldy. Common sense dictates. It's not some grand, shocking thing. But we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt on all this. For what it's worth, don't you think? Yeah, no, I definitely do. It's the pages of his diaries were missing. Even the Duchess says in Alice in Wonderland, "'Tis love, tis love that makes the world go round, but somebody said that it's done by everybody minding their own business." <laughs> so let's mind our business on that and close the book carefully on those myths, because we don't know. The experts don't know. Yeah, lots of disagreement. So there we go. But it actually makes for interesting study. That is true. So moving on in Lewis Carroll's life. He has rejected the priesthood, which was a condition for his employment. But for some unknown reason, again, we don't know exactly, he's allowed to stay on as a lecturer at Oxford. He's also started a kind of a writing career. He's writing magazine pieces, poems, poetry. He's also doing publishing math papers, I mean, which would be a part of his career to do. And he publishes those under his own name. I always think, so. I always think that's interesting. And the rest of the stuff he uses his pen name for. Um, he had almost a newspaper column where he'd ask these puzzles. And people would write in with the most bizarre answers, and then they would get published. He'd love that. He had an active social life when younger. And he gradually retreated, as so many of us do, into a quieter way of life. He gave away, honestly, to worthy causes, or, frankly, perfect strangers, a lot of the money he made. And um, became kind of kookily eccentric, which I heartily recommend to anyone that can afford it. He actually self-published Alice. He paid for the publishing of it, and the distributor took over and paid him 90% of the royalties. Because he put the money up front, and that paid off mightily for him, I would say. So Good plan, Chuck. <laughs> very savvy. He died at the age of 65. At this point, he was living with his sisters. His unmarried, six of them were unmarried, um, and he died of pneumonia. It came on very quickly. He died at the age of 65 at home. 
So Charles Dodgson died, but somehow Lewis Carroll is living on. Yes, Lewis Carroll lives on and becomes even, becomes bigger. I mean, he was kind of a rock star of the times. And then in his death, he took on a lot of mythological qualities. Mostly because as soon as he died, his family destroyed some pages of their of those diaries that he kept, and they created this big mystery people could just speculate about. Do you remember from the Queen Victoria podcast how mad we were at Queen Victoria's youngest daughter for destroying a third of Queen Victoria's <laughs> diaries? I think it was interesting because when his diary stopped, and there's this gap, and it's a big gap of five years, I think, five and five and a half years. His voice changed when he came back. He was this happy-go-lucky person, and then when the diaries restart, he's kind of melancholy, and he's writing these bad love poems and just kind of depressed. That would point to something really traumatic happening in that gap. So now it's time to take a little break, and when we come back, we are going to talk about his muse, the little girl in the middle of the boat that day, back in 1862, the real Alice. Exciting news! We have a new voicemail box. We would love to hear the sound of your voice. If you have a comment or a question or want to leave us any kind of message at all, just call us at 816-934-1234 and let us know what you're thinking. Again, the number is 816-934-1234. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, Motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. And we are back. We are talking about Alice in Wonderland, and now we're going to discuss Alice Pleasance Little. It rhymes with riddle. Yes. And it rhymes with riddle in a lot of poems, by the way. (laughs) So Alice Little was known for most of her life as, quote, the real Alice. She, in fact, was presented with the very first handwritten copy, which still exists, and we'll post the pictures of it on our website, um, with illustrations drawn by the author himself. So who was this girl? Who was this girl that Lewis Carroll has made immortal? She was born May 4th, 1852, to Reverend Henry and Mrs. Lorena Little. She was the fourth of ten children. She was one of a group of three sisters that were almost of an age and were always together. Lorena, named after her mother, of course. (laughs) Alice and Edith. At least Lorena is a pretty name. That's true. They called her Ina. That's pretty. That's cute. cute. Her family wasn't titled, but let's just put it this way. They were related to titled people. Her grandpa was the younger brother to a baronet. Her grandma was the daughter of an earl's brother. Like, so close. (laughs) She's fifth cousins, three times removed to the present Queen Elizabeth II. The permutations of which are beyond me, let's just say. (laughs) They're friends in high places. And Dad was the head of a very prestigious university, so they were they were in the right circle. Well, in fact, his position was so prestigious that when he got it, they announced that in the House of Commons. Like, that's the mm-hmm. level at which we are operating here. Mm-hmm. He said about making his high position clear, 
in a house that was originally built by Cardinal Wolsey. <laughs> so we can't ever get we away. We can't leave the Tudors. <laughs> Alice and her siblings grew up in prosperous surroundings, although they had no hot water. They had a tub. They were very proud of a large tub, but there was no hot water, so the children had to take a cold bath every day. Yay, let's dive in. Actually, it probably felt like diving into a pool, maybe. Oh, in the summer, in the wintertime, <laughs> sounds pretty bad. Torture. <laughs> kind of miserable. They were raised by their governess, Miss Prickett, who they called Pricks. <laughs> I love you know, I love Prickett. that, yeah. So but that's just you. like, that sounds like a made-up name almost, doesn't it? Miss mm-hmm. Prickett. Masters were brought in to teach them things like French and German and Italian and music. We mentioned before that all... Their meals were in the nursery. Children were not presentable until they were, quote, housebroken, <laughs> which doesn't mean that they're not peeing all over yeah. in the corners, but, you know, parents of this social class applied a little distance to their offspring. This is the era of children must be seen and not heard, after all. And so an adult that was going to take quite an interest in them, even if they're not housebroken, came clambering into the garden one day with a lot of crap. He had equipment dripping off of him. He had satchels hanging. He was carrying a big box. What the heck's going on? And the children ran over. This is a camera, he said. What's that? We're taking pictures of your house. And that was the first meeting of Alice Little and Lewis Carroll. She was four years old. She would stand in front of his camera quite a bit. I thought it was funny. They called people, now we call them subjects of photos. They called mm-hmm. them victims. <laughs> then. But she seemed to be a very happy victim in a number of cases. And that is probably where that myth that she was his favorite child friend came about, just because there's a lot of pictures of her. And, oh, yeah, there was these couple books that he wrote with her name in them. Well, the little children were all very photogenic. But if you're thinking of Alice as a blonde with tangled long curls and a blue dress, you'd be so wrong. Alice's hair was cut so unusually for the time in a straight black bob with bangs. She looked more like silent film star Louise Brooks. She does. Oh, that's very good. And if you don't know, we could put a picture up. Mm-hmm. So their mother dressed them so fancy. Anything that was fashionable was on their backs. These children lacked for nothing, materially speaking. So they loved Lewis Carroll so much. They used to sit on either side of him on the sofa, and he would draw pictures for them as he told stories. He wasn't an awesome artist, but he would draw these little hints to the story, and they just loved it. He was like the uncle they never had. They spent almost every day with him. In addition, guess who was at Oxford? The Prince of Wales, Queen Victoria's oldest son. And so you've got this royalty staying in the house. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the life these children lived. Royalty in the house and a fabulous uncle in the parlor. And all, every day they saw this guy until that period we talked about in 1863 when it all came to kind of to a crashing halt. He'd written the book. He'd presented her with the illustrated copy. Oddly. When it was published, Lewis Carroll decided the book Alice should not resemble the real Alice. Mm-hmm. Which leads me to believe that it was written for Alice. You know how writers, you know, you start out with an inspiration and then it morphs. And I think Lewis Carroll was thinking of his book Alice as a whole different person by the end. Yeah, I think so too. In the original, actually, in the end of the book, there's an acrostic poem that spells out Alice Pleasant's 
Liddell, that's evidence that it was written for her. He dedicates them to her. And there's a hand-drawn picture of her at the end. Mm-hmm. But her, her mannerisms are not really Alice. And I think it's like you said, originally it started off as this fun little story for her. And then once he got into it and started rewriting it and adding a lot of his wordplay and his riddles and all of his local jokes and everything, that's when he differentiated between Alice of the Story, who's blonde, and Alice in real life, who's not. Yeah, he sent the artist, the illustrator, Tennille, as his name, pictures of two of his child friends we'll post on the website. One's name was Mary Babcock, and the other was Beatrice Henley. And they both look a lot more like Alice of the Books than Alice Little looks like. So no word on if this hurt her feelings or not. Mama was still anti him. Maybe the coldness would rub off on Alice. I don't know. Uh, the book did fabulously, by the way, and she was immediately outed as the real Alice. So she was from a child dogged with this ghost child of Alice in Wonderland was always part of her life. Uh, Alice grew into an amazingly beautiful woman. Uh, Mama wanted a high match for her, and Prince Leopold was a dear friend. Yes, the three sisters actually took a grand tour of Europe, and rumor has it that she was romantically connected with Queen Victoria's youngest son, Prince Prince Leopold, who later names his first child Alice, and he was the godfather to Alice Little's son, whose name is Leopold Hmm. hmm. But he was also a pallbearer at Edith's funeral. So maybe it was Edith? Either way, this family was not of the social class that Queen Victoria had in mind for her son. So she put the kibosh on that and made sure Leopold married a princess. So Alice married the uh, man of great means, Reginald Hargraves. Cricket player. He's handsome. I yeah, think he is I handsome. So. She, and she was 28 when she got married, which seems late. That does seem late. She also had, her third son was named Carol, C-A-R-Y-L, which, when asked, Alice replied tartly that it's just a name from a novel. But she wouldn't name the novel. Interesting. Yeah, I think so. You don't just pick Carol out of a hat. Interesting. So Mrs. Hargreaves, as she became, was the mistress of a huge English country manor named Coffnells. She was high society. Anything you can imagine. Shooting parties, royal visitors. That was her new life. That was her real life. She only saw Lewis Carroll once more briefly when she was 39. Um, and then seven years passed before he died, and she did not go to his funeral. Her father had just died. Maybe that was the excuse, but she didn't go to his funeral when he died. Seems harsh to me. Well, it's just a small, I mean, it was a part of her childhood, and now she's a grown woman with this whole other life. It's almost as if she woke up, like Alice does, in the dream and to her real life, and that's just, I mean, it must have seemed very misty in her memory because she was so young. Now, she did, ultimately, we've mentioned that she had a a child named Leopold. Interestingly, Leopold was always called Rex in the family, which is Latin for king. Hmm. (laughs) So, Alan was her oldest, Rex II, Carol III. The first two sons died in World War I. Very Very sad. Uh, When, in the fullness of time, her husband died, his obituary mentioned he'd been married to Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) She can't get away. He leaves behind his wife, Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) I mean, basically. 
after all these tragedies. Um, her third son was alive, but here she was trying to maintain Kufnels, which is a big mansion. She needed some cash, and she decided to put up at Sotheby's for auction the handwritten copy that Lewis Carroll had given her of Alice in Wonderland. The original, and she sells it for four times what they had estimated it would bring in. That's pretty outstanding. It made well over $200,000 in today's money, but Alice had to be helped out. She was kind of overcome, I think, with emotion that she had let it go. Sure. Well, she would had to have been forced to the position that that was the only thing of great value. That's pretty sad. When the gentleman that bought it died, a group of Americans put together their money to buy it from his estate and they presented it to the British people in recognition for their courage in World War II. Awesome. So it is now in residence in the British Library. That original copy still exists, and you can go see it, you know, if you're in England. That's awesome. I know. So, quiet life here until 1932, when it's the 100th anniversary of Lewis Carroll's birth. And Alice, oh, Alice was invited everywhere. Um, in fact, she was invited to receive an honorary doctorate at Columbia. In America, she had said her favorite song was Soup of the Evening, Team Mock Turtle. <laughs> I love the Mock Turtle. If you listen to the minicast, um, you'll see how much on the side of the Mock Turtle I am. Her favorite character was the Cheshire Cat. I have to say, it was a newsreel. I can't find it anywhere online. Mm-mm. I want to. I want to hear her talk. I know. Me too. I couldn't either. Nope. So I looked and looked. So please, anyone who owns the newsreel of Alice in Wonderland talking. Or, yeah, send us the link. So Alice was celebrated a lot that year. She opened bookstores, gave speeches, she gave a lot of interviews, and she saw a film adaptation, a talkie, in fact, Mm -hmm. starring Charlotte Henry of Alice in Wonderland, and she said, quote, After seeing this film, I was filled with delight. The talking picture is the only possible medium for this best-loved of books. I think she was finally resigned and honestly happy. To have been a part of this thing. She um, was a cute old lady, too. She didn't look, you know, anything like she did as a child. She kind of looked wild as a child, and spending all those years as a society hostess, you know, refined her. All that corsetry will get to you eventually. <laughs> she had said to her son that she was tired of being Alice in Wonderland. Does that sound ungrateful? It does. But bit. one gets so tired. Yes. Well, one does. To be, be like, you know, Shirley Temple Black. You know, oh, I remember you from your movies. Okay. Yeah. I remember you from when you were five. I've done a lot since then. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So Alice Pleasance Little Hargraves died peacefully November 1934 at the age of 82. But again, just like Lewis Carroll, Alice lives on 150 years after her story was written down. So let's take a little break, and when we come back, we will talk about Alice in popular culture and give you some links and some sources. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with 100,000 titles over all kinds of literature. For listeners of the History Chicks, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. To go along with this episode, we recommend The Looking Glass Wars by Frank Bedor. We like to call this the Steampunk Alice. It's science fiction meets Victorian London. It's one of the cleverest adaptations we've seen. To 
receive your audiobook today, go to audible.com slash thehistorychicks or simply follow the Audible link on our website, thehistorychicks.com. said about what the stories mean. What do these stories mean? Well, let me quote the author himself. I'm very much afraid I didn't mean anything but nonsense. Still, you know, words mean more than we mean to express when we use them, so a whole book ought to mean a great deal more than the writer meant. So this confirmed my lifelong <laughs> suspicion that so much literary analysis and deep convolutedness that people do to books are bunkum. <laughs> I mean, do you think if the guy basically himself says, mm, no, maybe it's like that technique where you ask a question and then you flip a book open and mm -hmm. the answer is supposed to be like somewhere on that page, your brain is going to find some connection to your experience, to your state of mind, and mm -hmm. that's going to be your answer? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, you're going to find in this book what you already kind of want to find in the book in your head. Right. Well, so people have linked these books to... I a, love this list. Go. A Secret History of the Oxford Movement, Judaic Interpretations of Scripture, Castration Complexes and Mother Fantasies, Dreams, Freud, Fear of Death, A Metaphor for Unrequited Love. Any of these, honestly, you could convince yourself of if you analyze it most heavily. If you analyze a limerick, you can get, you can get anything out of it. Whole works have been devoted, honestly. Whole works have been devoted to the secret mathematical code involved in Alice in Wonderland. Or the hidden meanings of it, such. It's a whole study. Corollian studies. It's mind-boggling the amount of thought that has been put into this work 150 years after it was written. Um, Humpty Dumpty, in fact, says it best <laughs> when he says, Impenetrability! That's what I say! I love Humpty Dumpty, and he's right. This whole thing, impenetrability. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? The Red Queen says, take care of the sense, and the sounds will take care of themselves. I think he was doing the opposite with these books. He was taking care of the sounds, mm -hmm. and the sense was going to take care of himself. Just like in Jabberwock. Mm -hmm. It means something, but we don't know what. But there's a lot of fancy pictures in my head. That's right. I love that. So I think that's what it means to me. It's interesting. Do you remember these books fondly? I mean, do you, from his child, or even the movie? No, I remember falling asleep at it when I was a little kid. And quite, it's never been my favorite story ever. I, I can appreciate it now, like you've been saying before as an adult. I can appreciate there's a lot of references that you only get if you understood the land of Oxford, if you only lived in that time period, if you were only in the little family. You know, there's a lot of references like that. I can appreciate it, but it's never really been my favorite story now. Yeah, and, you know, if you think about it, so she shows up, and everyone's mean to her. They yell at her, come on, you know, and they tell her she's stupid and that she's not real, and there's freaky stuff happening all over the place. They try to fool her all the time. They're playing with her head. I do love the comedy now, but I wonder how much I took in as a child. I do. I wonder. And fairy tales are always grim, though. Ah. Uh, so I guess what Alice in Wonderland means to me is mystery and novelty and maybe being somewhere you've never been. And that's really as deep as it goes for me. I think. Yeah, I can't read it any deeper. So I don't want to. <laughs> let's talk about Alice 
in pop culture. Oh, she's everywhere. She is everywhere. You know, the fanfic started immediately, which cracks me up. Uh, fanfic is just like works based on an existing mm-hmm. work that you put your own self into or whatever. There is a book called A New Alice in the Old Wonderland written by Anna Richards in 1895. So we've got a 30-year period and all of a sudden here comes the fanfic. There's one called New Adventures of Alice from 1917 that purports to be a sequel. There's Alice Through the Needle's Eye, 1984. Also a sequel. There's The Automated Alice. Those are direct descendants of this, mm-hmm. putting the original Alice in different right. forms. The Alice books themselves, in fact, have been adapted. Different illustrators have taken over. There's one edition illustrated by Salvador Dali. Because if you can't get any weirder than Lewis Carroll's original story, you should go to Salvador Dali. Now, movie adaptations abound from that talkie version we saw earlier. There were silent films before that. Oh, there were. Even Disney himself had a one of his very first successes was Alice's Wonderland. It was a live-action meets cartoon characters where a live-action girl goes into the cartoon land in 1923. The one that we think of, the iconic Disney animated movie, didn't come out until 1951. So this story was playing around in Disney's head all those years. Most of us, that was our first exposure to Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. The movie itself, like I said, it's, he started thinking about it in the early 20s. In the 30s, Mickey Mouse, there's a cartoon where he goes through a mirror into a Wonderland-esque land. So this Alice in Wonderland theme is playing in Disney's versions. In 1939, he has an illustrator that's working on it, but the storyboards are getting too dark. But Disney's got this in his head that he wants to make this. He just needs to get the right team together. He needs to make things happen. Aldous Huxley even wrote an adaptation for the screenplay for Disney. Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World, the most dystopian. That's the guy. That's, <laughs> That's the awesome. guy. It's not until a woman named Mary Blair gets involved in the Disney production that it actually starts to look like it's going to happen. Um, she was a Disney illustrator and animator for over 30 years with Disney. She's a big deal in the illustration world. Someone wrote us a note just as we were about to record this about Mary Blair, and I was like, oh, that's a name that we need to look at. I will do a special feature on Mary Blair because she really should be remembered, especially for her contribution to this particular movie. But she was a concept artist, and she got the look of Alice working, and then finally it all came together in true Disney fashion in 1951. Also, are there any lost fans out there? You'd be surprised, or maybe not. If you're a true Lostie, you probably already know this, but that show, Lost, is rife with Alice references. Oh, it is. There's a Lostpedia out online, and we'll link you to the Alice in Wonderland references, but there's a white rabbit usage in several episodes. There's an episode where the baby boy turns into a pig. There's a whole dream atmosphere of the show. One of the stations was the Looking Glass stations. There is Alice references dropped all over. You can't miss them. There's a whole list of them. Some you might have missed. Yeah, we'll link you to that. Also, a little show called The Matrix features a white rabbit tattoo, which Keanu Reeves' character has to follow. There is an alarming Dark Alice adaptation in the video game American McGee's Alice, the tagline of which, when Alice responds to a mysterious summons to return to Wonderland, the place is barely recognizable. Something has gone very wrong. 
Dun, dun, dun. That is not a bright and happy video game, if, by if, the way. And if that's how you like your Alice, dark and art housey and kind of odd and creepy, it streams on Netflix. There is a movie from 1988. It's from a Czech director whose name I am sure to mispronounce, Jan Svankmeyer. <laughs> it is a live action, stop motion, puppet, dead animal, doll adaptation that's dark and gritty and strange. It's one of those you either love it or you hate it. It's just called Alice, and it streams on Netflix. So I suggest that you watch it, probably not with children. Like, the white rabbit is taxidermied, and he pulls himself out of it, pulls the nails from his hands, breaks through the glass, and this Alice actress is just following him all over. It does follow the storyline very closely to the original. I will say that. If you like your Alice creepy. Now, if you like your Mad Hatter creepy, (laughs) you can watch the current version starring Johnny Depp. Hmm. I don't know Johnny Depp. I hadn't actually seen that movie until we started researching this. And I watched it, and I called you up, and I'm like, am I supposed to like this? And I'm like, I like how it looks. Visually, shockingly awesome. The costuming alone. Yes. Crispin Glover is probably just like that in real life, by the way. Um, so I'm not that surprised. Uh, the Mad Hatter, okay, if if nothing else, that whole futter-whacking dance, gross. I know, that was just, that was I don't even stupid. understand it. I liked, I don't know how to say her name, but Mia Wasilowska. Mm-hmm. I liked her as Alice. I seriously did. I thought she did a good job. And I liked Helena Bonham Carter. I like her in anything. I as think the her. White Queen was woefully miscast. Oh, yes, Quite. I, I can see why Anne Hathaway took it, because it was a departure for her, but I just, and I love her, but I did not love her in this at all. This is not my favorite. No, and it really does combine the two stories together in a kind of a con- convoluted fashion. Although, I did watch it with my seven-year-old, and he liked it. So there you go. That's a little dark, but not quite as dark as that 80s version. No, that was really... Now, there is, though, a version that is futuristic that I really love. It is a science fiction series. It's a young adult series, uh, kind of in the vein of Harry Potter ages. Um, It's called The Looking Glass Wars. I didn't know what to expect, and I read the whole first book in one night. Um, This seems, although it was written before Grimm came out, this seems a little bit like that. There has been a revolt by the Red Queen. Alice, Alice Hart, mm-hmm. who is being groomed to be the queen of hearts, gets kicked into the real world by falling through a mirrored pool. So she's in our world, and she gradually stops remembering who she is. She's adopted by the Littles, and a man called Hatter Madigan is sent to the real world to look for her through time and space. So it also combines Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass in a modern way, and all the cards that are chasing her have become robots or automatons, and Mm. there's a great war, and there's a resistance movement, and she comes back to reclaim her throne after she remembers who she is. It's amazing. Now, art. There is a website called Altered Alice. It's at alteredalice.blogspot.com, and obviously we will put a link on our website to it. But it has links to Alice-inspired artwork from all over the world and some really cool pieces. So it's just fun to see the way different artists use their materials and their vision to create Alice. It's pretty special. One word of warning, just from experience, if you Google image Alice in Wonderland, be prepared 
to get some disturbing and or off-color images because that is a very common fantasy world motif to put the mm-hmm. ladies in Alice outfits. I'm just telling you. Yeah, so probably shouldn't do that. Uh, <laughs> or you should, you know, depending. As far as other websites go, I'll start with this one, which I just, I love this website. It's carolmyth.com. They have a mission to dispel myths about Lewis Carroll, and it's a fun website to go see. They obviously put a lot of work into it. It's a spinoff from another site called Contrary Wise, and that's put on by the Association of Lewis Carroll Studies. Now, we aren't going to forget the big one in the room, the Lewis Carroll Society. There's Lewis Carroll Societies all over the world, and they all have websites, and they all have tons of information, not only on the Alice stories, but on Lewis Carroll himself. And Alice Little Hargreaves, too. Mm-hmm. They, um, big deal, Lewis Carroll Society puts a lot, these are people that put a lot of thought, this is their thing. So they put a lot of research into it. There's, they have blogs where they talk about different Alice, anything. You can get in as deep as you want to. Mm-hmm. There are experts taking almost every position you could think of with regard to the myths the legend, the man. And the Lewis Carroll Society of the UK is having, if you're in Oxford this summer, July 4th through the 8th, they are doing a reading, the 150th reading of the first telling of the story, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Big doings in Oxford this summer. Since you're in England for that festival, there is a window in Daresbury at All Saints Church featuring Lewis Carroll, Alice, the White Rabbit, the Dodo, Bill the Lizard, the Mock Turtle, woo, Team Mock Turtle, the Knave, the Cat, and the Queen. That's all I'm saying. It's in a church. It's made of stained glass. Well, if you're not in England and you want to see, there's that Central Park statue. Yes. That's been there for quite a few years, which is very charming. If you stay in the Langham chain of hotels in Europe, you get a free copy of Wonderland. Nice. You can listen to both stories for free on iTunes. LibriVox.org has recorded them. They're both in the public domain. You can listen for free. I highly recommend you do it. It's quite awesome. You can just walk around and jog and listen to Alice in your ear. If you want to read it, again, in the public domain, they're on Project Gutenberg. If you'd like to read it on your handhelds or your laptops or whatever, wherever you read this stuff. If you would like to hear some songs, Tom Petty has a song. Don't come around here no more. Elvis Costello has a song about Alice. Jefferson Airplane has the Go Ask Alice when she's ten feet tall. Go ahead, sing it. Go ask Alice when she's ten feet tall. (laughs) See, she's everywhere. She's everywhere. She's everywhere. (laughs) Curiouser and curiouser. Now, we, I have a stack of books that is falling over. There are so many books about Lewis Carroll, so many books about Alice, so many books about Alice in Wonderland and analyzing and mathematics and logic and wordplay. I'm not going to list them all here. No. Put them all on the website. And I think we really need to narrow it down to the ones that are our favorites. Yes. And I think this was a favorite, yes. A Mystery of Lewis Carroll by Jenny Wolfe. Yes. Definitely a favorite. Very readable. Another book we liked was The Real Alice by Anne Clark that covers the life of Alice Little. And the grand tome of all these special features, the DVD director's cuts, the annotated Alice by Martin Gardner, which I think is just amazing. Yeah, I think... Have it in your library. Yeah, you. Yeah, this is an own book if you are in, interested in Alice in Wonderland at all. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. 
very large, but <laughs> very detailed, and it will fill you in on all the inside jokes. For the kids, and actually I love this version because now that I am a huge Mary Blair fan, it's Walt Disney's Alice in Wonderland, retold by John Sheska. The pictures in it are all Mary Blair's illustrations for Alice, and it's charming. If you appreciate art and appreciate the story, this is a great version. And that about covers Alice. We had no idea there was so much. Well, you could study this for years. It just branches off. That happens with us with a fictional character. Yeah. It just branches off into so many areas, but it was fun. It was fun. So let me leave you with just a tiny bit of the poem that closes out Alice's story. Long has paled that sunny sky, echoes fade, and memories die. Autumn frosts have slain July. Still, she haunts me, phantom-wise, Alice, moving under skies never seen by waking eyes. Thanks for listening. Bye. For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at thehistorychicks, with an X, or like us on Facebook, without an X. Listen to us on Stitcher, the super fabulous radio app of tomorrow. If you liked us in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. 